0: two pillars. The New Testament rests upon what I call two pillars. There, are, uh, uh, The 27 books that comprise the New Testament, each one is equally weighty and equally anointed of God, equally inclusive in what's called the canon or the list of Scripture, of divinely inspired Scripture. And Uh, These two pillars are the basis upon which, along with the book of Acts, to give us the history of the early church, the basis of, of the bulk of our faith and practice as Christians. The two pillars, next slide please, are the book of Romans on the one hand and the book of Hebrews on the other. These are great works. I have struggled, folks, I have truly struggled with where to go next. And I sensed that I wanted to go to one of these two books because they are both so weighty and so meaty. And there is so much instruction and there is so much understanding there is so much depth in both of these books. As we look at the two, the book of Romans reveals the necessity of the Christian faith. Romans reveals the nature of Christianity through presenting, it presents a deep and a rich understanding of the nuts and bolts of what it is that we get in the transaction, what it is that he did, and what it is where we were at the first three chapters, well, up to the middle of the third chapter, Uh, being, I call it the great indictment of humanity. Nobody gets off. I mean, there is, what he does is he, 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 so clearly, the Apostle Paul illustrates what the problem is. Because in order to understand the good news, that's what gospel means. You have to understand the bad news. You have to grasp it. And so he starts in the book of Romans with laying out the bad news that our depravity is so complete that we are without hope uh, in being able to get to God. And so God comes to us. And, and then he goes through these rich doctrinal things as far as justification by faith, justified in God's eyes. Sanctification by faith. He goes in chapter 8 to the life of the Holy Spirit. 9, 10, and 11 are all about Israel and the fact that he's not done with her. And and praise God for that. And then practical application for the rest of the book. Uh, the the book of Romans is written to a largely Gentile audience. In other words, anybody that's not a Jew is a Gentile. And, and so you and I as Gentiles, unless there's anybody that's Messianic in here, uh, would be the ones that that really was focused on. Now, there's great instruction for everyone in it, but that was the focus when Paul wrote it. Always wanted to, uh, he always wanted to visit Rome. He had no idea that in God's providence he would visit Rome in chains. But he wanted to go to Rome. He had a heart for this church that he didn't plant. And so he writes this book, he writes this letter to the church at Rome and just gives this brilliant exposition. Those of you that have studied it and have read it and all, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Conversely or, or actually on this if you you know one of the things I look at is if the New Testament were a mountain range, Romans would be the highest peak. Uh, it is it is just a beautiful book and yet Hebrews is in my view sort of a close runner up because while Romans reveals the necessity of the Christian faith, Hebrews Reveals the superiority of the Christian faith. And there's a difference. It's, it's, it's the same gospel. It's the same message. It's presented in a different way to a different group of people. Hebrews reveals the nature of Christianity through presenting a series of striking contrasts. And I mean, and they are striking. Uh, it's primarily with Judaism, but you can use the same contrast with just about any other ism out there. I came out of one of the isms that's popular in our day. And part of my coming into a fullness in Christ and my own relationship with him was coming to an understanding of these two books. Uh, written to a largely... Messianic Christian audience, not to Gentiles. There's actually there's no mention of Gentiles in the whole book, in, in the book of Hebrews. Um, wonderful book. Uh, if I had my druthers and I don't, it would be the first book in the New Testament because it bridges the covenants. We talked about the covenant a few minutes ago as we're looking at, uh, at communion and the new covenant in his blood and, and that Everything shifted when Jesus came and accomplished the act of redemption on our behalfs. Everything did the law the effect of the law was fully terminated on that cross and so what's happening in the book of Hebrews is just these the writer has got a burden for these struggling Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians and so he writes to encourage them. We'll get into that as we go. but the point is folks. I would love to teach both of these books, but I can't. And I struggled up until—I mean, I didn't—I wasn't decided. Last Sunday, when I said you'll find out then, it was because uh, it's like, well, Lord, show me any time. Um, <laughs> kind of got to teach on Sunday, but I can't teach both. And, and and I really just spent a lot of time in prayer, and I really believe that where the Lord wants us as a church to go next is into the Book of Hebrews, and so. If you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to open it to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to begin a series of studies in the book of Hebrews that will, you, know, you guys know how fast I go, uh, probably take us somewhere into 2020, <laughs> and So, uh, but I'm excited about this. I, I've had the privilege of teaching this book a couple of times in northern Thailand, uh, and I, I've taught it. Uh, prior to that in a church in California. But uh, what I'm excited about from a personal perspective is it's like, and and I held out all my notes. I I have notes going back 35 years in this book, or 34. And and I opened, I, I dated myself in my office this week because I opened my notebook from Bible school. And the pages were yellow And I thought, oh, great. You know, I've never noticed how yellow. These 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 notes are getting old. But there was richness there. And it's not like, oh, great. You know, I can just, you know, take the notes I've had. Because I have like 170 pages of notes on Hebrews from when I taught it in Thailand. And then a bunch of notes from other time. And then from school and all that. But I get to take that and use that as a foundation and then build on it. Because I'm not using the same outline I've used at any other time. This is, it's a new outline, and I, I just feel strongly about that. I was talking to somebody this week, and I said, you know, um, I could go on Saturday afternoon and spend a couple of hours and, and go online, and, and there are a zillion sermon onla- outlines online, and I could go through and pick a sermon outline And then spend a couple of hours boning up on it, you know, figuring it out, copying it into my my word processor, and then just teach it. But I don't want to do that. You deserve more than that, and I love to study. I love to dig. I love to mine the word of God, to mine it, to to go in and say, Lord, what do you have for us as a church? I don't want to give you yesterday's manna. You know what happened to Israel when they tried that? It was kind of stinky. So we wanna have fresh manna. I am excited about going to this book because I am excited about going through it again and building on the things that that I've learned over the years and all of that, but having fresh manna and, and looking at it from that standpoint. So as we look at this, the first comment I would say about Hebrews is it brings a tremendous value. Uh, doctrinally, especially when we look at the issue of grace versus legalism, which is very prominent in religious circles today. It was prominent when I got saved. I, praise God, was, was, uh, came to Christ in a Bible teaching, Bible believing church, very strong teaching. And, and that was a good thing. Uh, but it wasn't long before I remember going fishing with a guy that had gone to that church and had gone to since to another church, and and we're sitting there fishing. He's going, do you, you like it there? And I said, oh, I love it there. And he goes, oh. oh, we had to leave. And I said, really? Why is that? And he said, not enough rules. And I went, what? And I thought, what an odd thing to say. And even then, as a baby Christian, I went, not enough rules? You know, and, and as I as I grew and as I began to understand more about what this thing is that we call Christianity, it's not about rules. It's about a relationship. Because if it's about rules, I remember one time I had a guy call me and he said, man, I'm really freaked out. I said, what's up? And, and he went into an area of sin that he was in and, and and I said, you know, that's reason to be freaked out. I mean, you need to repent of that and you need to get right with the Lord and get right with this other person. And he said, well, you know, I know that it's, you know, I've broken the rules. And I said, wait, wait, wait. If we were living under law, then you would have laws to break. But we're living under grace. So which carries more weight? If you break a rule, you break a law... Or if under grace, my disobedience is a direct affront. My disobedience grieves, is grievous to the Holy Spirit of God. What carries more weight? And he was like, oh, wow. I said, yeah, that's what it's about. It's not about keeping lists of rules or not keeping them. It's about loving obedience as a response to the love of God. My response is I don't want to be in sin. I don't want to have unrepentant sin. That's the difference. Hebrews gives a great, very clear series of examples on that difference because it contrasts Judaism, by and large, with the new covenant, with what we have in Christ. Uh, and these contrasts, there are a number of them. So the purpose of the book. Uh, interesting, it it begins like a sermon. It's written like a sermon, and there is a pastoral heart behind the writer. Uh, We'll get to the writer in a few minutes. But it ends like a letter. Uh, The purpose of the book is the same. It's threefold. There are three purposes this book was written. The first is to confirm Jewish Christians by showing that Old Testament Judaism had come to an end through the fulfillment by Christ of the whole purpose of the law. Okay, okay. It, read the book of Galatians. The, the, the law was a tutor; it was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Uh, talking with someone recently, I said, "When you're driving down the road and you're driving, you're just driving along, and you see a policeman coming the other way, what's the first thing that happens? It doesn't matter if you're speeding or not. My foot comes off the gas, and then I look at my speedometer." Okay, that's a consciousness of law, but that's what the law does. It reminds us of sin. It tells, it doesn't have any, the law, that policeman doesn't have any effect on whether or not I'm speeding, but he does bring a consciousness of it to me, and that's the purpose. And so it, it, it's confirming to these these people who were steeped in Judaism, it's confirming that the law was done away. It was fulfilled. It wasn't. It wasn't abolished. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And then, it, and now, by faith in Christ, the law is fulfilled in me. In Him, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about the rules. The second is to warn uh, some who had identified themselves as Christians to warn them against falling back into Judaism because they were under a lot of stress. We'll get into that. Uh, the, the second part of that is to warn them uh, against pausing in their walk with Him, stopping short of true faith in Christ, because people can have, I mean, the Bible, the New Testament talks about those who have an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power, the power thereof, and so it's a warning to not fall short, to not pause short of true faith in Christ. There is a difference, folks, between a Christian and a deist. The world is full of deists. Now, deists is well, I believe in God, but they don't want to talk about sin, they, they, they would, my God would never judge people. My God, and you know, no, it, it's a warning against that. That's somebody who has paused and they might believe in God, but they have never come to faith. They have never come to faith in Jesus the Messiah, the one who died for them. And so there was this waffling going on in the first century and the writer is addressing that. The third is to bring to the attention of Christians everywhere the preeminence. Of Jesus Christ. He is preeminent in all things. And so as we get into this book, you'll see the preeminence that he brings. Uh, I want to take, we're going to have a lot a lengthy kind of an intro to this book because it's a, on the outside it looks a little bit complex, but it really isn't when we unpack it. Uh, one of the things I noticed when I was in Thailand was uh, the first time I went, it was very interesting. I, I, I was teaching the book of Hebrews to a bunch of Burmese uh, pastors and Bible college teachers that we had brought in from Burma or Myanmar, as it's a, the military's name for it. Anyway, we, the the ministry I was part of was stationed right at the border of Myanmar and Thailand, and Laos was right there too. A golden Triangle. Okay, it used to be a very heavy, it still is, very heavy opium producing region. All that. Um, interesting ministry so i'm teaching the book of hebrews to all of these asian pastors and teachers and i realized part way in that there was a disconnect and and looking at it further i came to understand that there was a real downplaying of the old testament in these guys understanding of the bible they were not connecting with the book of Hebrews because they had never connected with the Old Testament and the significance of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is rich. And so that was an issue, and I had to keep going back and, and teaching from the Old Testament. I, I learned very quickly that I wasn't going to carry this thing with these guys. So the next year, I, I told Charlie, the guy that oversees the ministry, I said, Charlie, I got to do an Old Testament survey before I can teach the book of Hebrews. I've got to do it. Uh, I don't want to have that same issue that I had last last year. So, so I go along, and I spent quite a bit of time. I came up with this chart that, that some of you have given it to. You. But I, I I developed a whole course on on the Old Testament, a survey through the Old Testament from Adam to the cross. And, and you know, we tagged a whole bunch of stuff, and it was like one page with all these dates and scriptures and all this other stuff. And I made a big poster that I hung behind me. It was like three by six feet, and had this chart on it. And then I taught the survey, but when I got to Thailand, I was kind of freaked out. I was like, oh, man, I've got, this is a two-week intensive that I'm going to do with these guys, and I've got way more information than I have time to teach. So I got with Charlie, and first we got there on Saturday. I'm expected to be teaching on Monday morning. And, you know, we had traveled 15 time zones, so a little tired. And uh, and so I said, Charlie, i got a problem. He said, "What's that?" I said, "Well, you know, I, I'm supposed to be uh, teaching these guys, and and I've come up with this Old Testament survey, but I've got like 150 pages of notes on the Old Testament before I'm going to teach Hebrews. I don't know how I'm going to find the time to do this." And he said, "Well, I have a problem too." And I said, "What's that?" He said, "Well, our son is sick, and my wife had to go back to the United States and and fly him back, and he's requiring 24-hour care right now. I don't have time to teach because." I was supposed to take the the day courses and he was supposed to take the night. I said, well, there's your answer. I'll do it all. And he goes, oh man, there's no way. No, John, that's like 12 hours a day of teaching. I said, let's try it. Let's see what God wants to do. And folks, I'm telling you, it was one of the most amazing, I'm tired after a Sunday morning here. I just want to go home and put my feet up for a while because it's, 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 it's a tiring exercise teaching. And so but I went there and I taught from eight thirty in the morning till like nine o'clock, eight thirty, nine o'clock at night, every day. And and, and I have told some of you guys a story. About three or four days in this this little Burmese pastor, his name was Heaven. That was his English name. You don't, you can't usually pronounce their uh, Burmese name. Anyway, he comes up to me, and he says, uh, sir, may I speak with you? And I said, Well sure, Heaven. What's up? You know, I'm looking down at him because you got to see the class teachers, There's this whole class of people, and then John, and then the rest of the class. Um, at any rate, so I, I said, "What's going on?" He, and he—they didn't understand the nuances of the English language. And he said, "Sir, you must be exhausted by now." He didn't know the H was silent. <laughs> and I'm smiling. I said, "You want to know something?" And I'm telling you guys. I, I said, "I feel refreshed. I never had jet lag." And I mean. That's remarkable because it's like, it takes a week to get adjusted. And and I was teaching less than two days after the wheels were down. And I I, I feel focused. I can't wait to get to class and I can't wait to go forward. But the point is, is that I was able to teach these guys about the Old Testament so that the book of Hebrews would make sense. And God honored it. Now, yeah, and I I hit the wall when I came home. I was like, oh my gosh, where's the door? But... It was just a wonderful, wonderful time. That was the last time I taught this book. So as we get into this, we're going to bounce back to the Old Testament quite a bit because I want to bring light to the book of Hebrews where it talks about an Old Testament passage. We'll go and we'll look at it. We're not going to get down into a ton of detail on that, but we do want to have a basic understanding. Some of you have read this and studied this before. Probably a lot of you have. And my... That you'll enjoy this, and not only enjoy it, but God will speak to you, and God will use this in your life to deepen your faith, because that's what it's about. General information, the title. Uh, The title Hebrews was not the original title. Did you know that? It didn't come until the second century. Uh, It didn't have a title, but it, it... the word Hebrews, it's an interesting, it has an interesting origin. If you look at Noah and the ark, he and he had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and they came through and all. Um, Shem was the father of the Hebrew race or the Hebrew people. His son's name was Eber. And where we get the word Hebrew is from Eber. And I'm glad they don't call them the Ebers. But the Hebrews, it was, it, it, it came from Eber, his son, because they're at the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel, when God confounded the languages and the different people went off to different places, the sons of Shem went off and they became the Hebrew people. Now, Shem is another interesting word. It's an interesting name because it's where we get the word Semites. It's to say, it'd be like saying a Shemite. Okay, so anybody that's a Semitic tribe, that's a son of Shem. And so origins of the word, I mean, that's going way back. The point is, is that in the book of Hebrews, it did not get, it was a letter that was just largely circulated around, uh, probably around the Roman Empire, in, very possibly in Rome itself, uh, back in the first century. About the second century, they identified, this is to Messianic Christians, to Hebrew Christians. And so they gave it the, the title Hebrews. No mention, as I said, of Gentiles in this book. Um, and he's teaching Jewish believers that Jesus is just simply so much more than anything they had experienced. So when it comes to the writer, nobody knows. Uh, the book begins with God. In the old or the New Testament, all of the letters, you know, it'll say Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the church at Colossae, or to the churches in Galatia, which was a region, not just a specific church, or to the church at Ephesus and, and all that. There's none of that here. So, um, when the writer is writing, for whatever reason, they put the, the name God at the front end of this. Now, when you wrote a letter in those days, you know how when you get a letter in the mail, the top left has the return address. The first word in these scrolls, because that's how they were written, you didn't you didn't want to go to the end of the thing to find out who wrote it. So the first word would be the return address, essentially. So that's why the letters in the New Testament start with Paul, uh, an apostle of Christ, or James, or whatever. The, and that's typical form. And there were, probably for reasons of persecution, I'm guessing, Uh, or some other reasons uh, that the writer left his or her name off, and I believe it was a he, but uh, there's some different possibilities. What's interesting is the things that we do know about the writer is that he'd been in chains. Chapter 10, verse 34 tells us that the writer was in chains. We also know that it was written from or to Italy. Uh, We can generally gather that, and, and we'll get into that In a minute, Uh, we also know that his companion was Timothy. Uh, Nobody doubted who wrote it in the first century. That we don't know doesn't mean that they didn't. Nobody doubted it. The writer was known uh, to the recipients, and they received it as authoritative. That's the point. And so that we don't understand, that we don't know who the writer is, really doesn't affect the fact that God is the author, the Holy Spirit is the author of this and it is absolutely inspired scripture. Could have been Paul. Uh, we see long sentences like we're looking in here. The first four verses is one sentence uh, as we get into chapter one and, and all, but but it could have been Paul. Paul was also highly educated. He had the equivalent of a double PhD in theology. Uh, Hebrews is written with very high Greek it is the most, it's the highest Greek of any writing in the New Testament. It was written by an educated man. It was written by somebody who really understood Judaism, intimately familiar with Judaism. He uses the word we or let us a lot in that book. So uh, the assumption can easily be made that the person was a Jewish Christian. And so, and, he, and he's burdened for his countrymen. could have been Paul. I have previously held to, privately, that it was the Apostle Paul that wrote it. I'm not so sure. As I've been studying this time around, uh, I really got into some interesting data on uh, one of the other guys that it equally could have been. could have been Barnabas. Barnabas was a Levite, uh, we're told in Acts 4.36. And he was also from Cyprus, which would be, excuse me, that was a, a large Hellenistic or Greek center island of Cyprus off the coast of Israel and go north, uh, the island up there, it was part of the Roman Empire and it was a Greek uh, cultural stronghold. It was was a a place where people would be very highly educated. Again, it fits, but we don't know. could have been, and here's one, this came later, but I'm gonna mention it anyway. It could have been Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, they were the ones who oversaw the church in Rome. It could have been, aquila's wife priscilla i don't think so and it came later it's 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 a cool thought i mean and it would explain why the writer's name is not uh, on priscilla in in verse one it would explain why they were holding off on that because there was still a lot of uh, there was still a lot of hostility towards women in the first century even though christ had elevated them to equal status as, as men so it could have been it's doubtful but that's a, it's something that's been postulated. The, another one here, and this, is, this one got me. This is interesting. Could have been Apollos. Remember, in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, the Corinthians were dividing well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Cephas. Well, I'm of Apollos. Apollos was a very highly educated guy from Alexandria, Egypt, and he was a convert to Judaism. And as a convert, he would have, he he was a very studious man. Um, Alexandria, again, cultural center in Egypt, high education available there. Uh, He was a brilliant orator. Acts 18, 24 through 28, tells us about him quite a bit. Um, And both his background and his abilities fit being able to be the one that, that wrote this letter. Um his background would certainly have enabled him to, to write in the style that's found here in Hebrews. Uh, Apollos also knew Paul and had indirectly been instructed, instructed by him through Priscilla and Aquila in the church at Rome. So could have been. Another one, this is the last one I'll go to, is a guy by the name of Clement of Rome. Uh, many people, I was reading one guy that says it's absolute, that's it, I'm writing, I'm, I'm teaching it as though Clement wrote it. And I'm like, that's a little dangerous, but whatever He was a first-century leader at the church at Rome. Uh, A lot of the writings call him a bishop at Rome, and which and that simply means elder. So you know whatever, but he was a leader there, and he was also an educated man. He was very well respected, and the only thing is is that he quotes Hebrews late in the first century. So uh, I don't think it was Clement. Some do uh, that he had the education, he had the background, he had the knowledge. Uh, but the point is, if God wanted the writer to be known, it'd be known. And we don't know. And, and so as I teach this, when I am teaching, I will say the writer. And I won't even mutter Paul under my breath, I promise. But we're going to teach it so that The writer is the writer. Because the authority and the inspiration of Hebrews rests on the authorship and in of the Holy Spirit and it's inspired content. It, it, this is inspired work. It, it is, it's not the author, the, the, the veracity of this book doesn't rest on the writer, it rests on the author. And, and that's the thing that we keep in mind there. So next thing is, when was it written? Nobody knows. <laughs> you find out that there's a lot that nobody knows in this. But but that doesn't mean that we can't back into an approximate date. And, and, and I'm going to walk through that exercise with you because I walked through it the other day. And, and I just found it to be fascinating because you can narrow it down to a pretty narrow range of years. So, again, Clement of Rome uh, quoted Hebrews in, in the year 95. So we know it was before 95, right? All right. He's not going to quote something that doesn't exist. So that's pretty easy. Now. Another thing is it's probably before the year 70. Why? Because in the year 70, the Romans obliterated Herod's temple. They wiped the temple mount clean. And this is an argument, it's a series of arguments on why these Messianic Christians shouldn't abandon Christianity and go back to Judaism. And that would have been a great reason to argue from. And there's no mention of it. So we can assume that it was written before 70, before the temple was destroyed. The temple was still going. It was still up and running. And So uh, we can also look at that it was probably before the year 64. Uh, you hear the old saying, that, that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Well, that's a true story. He probably was responsible for setting the city on fire. The guy was a nut job. That's a Bible word too. Um, he really was. He was he was he was messed up. And 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 what he did was he blamed the fire on Christians. And a huge persecution broke out in the year 64. And and I mean it was re I mean, that was when they were using Christians for lanterns and I mean lighting them on fire, burning them alive. Uh I mean it was horrible. Feeding them to the lions in the arena in the Colosseum. They, they were using them for sport. Uh, the Romans would just come and round up groups of Christians and kill them all. I mean, it was a a terrible persecution that broke out at that time. It's part of what incited the Jews in 66 to stand against the Romans. And and there was a four-year siege in Jerusalem that lasted until the Romans broke through the siege banks and wiped out the city in 70. So we can assume it was before 64 because... In, in Hebrews 12, 4, the writer says, you've not resisted to the point of bloodshed. And if it was after 64, there was a very good chance, especially if this was a church in Rome, it was somewhere in the Roman Empire, but there was a very good chance that they had experienced major bloodshed. So again, it, it's you can look at this and say, okay, well, all right. Now, there was a lesser persecution that broke out in the year forty nine I hope I'm not boring you guys I just I love to 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 just present this history because it's understanding that we're establishing the foundation of this book and and then when we get into the text it'll make a lot more sense so please stay with me here um, in forty nine there was a guy by the name of Emperor Claudius and he got upset with the Jews in Rome and he kicked him out uh, this is recorded for us um, in in uh, chapter ten, the the writer says you had your goods plundered and all that when you were younger, and it was probably Claudius's persecution, but it was a minor. It was a, it was a regional persecution, not empire wide. Uh, so it was after forty nine because we see evidences of that persecution in both in Hebrews and in the Book of Acts. Here's where. It, probably settles out. It was probably in the early up until maybe the mid-60s, but no later than that. Because in 64, again, Nero did his deal. So it was probably around 60 or in the early 60s AD. Um, The writer hints in in this book that a greater persecution is coming. There was a lot of unrest. These guys were in a vice. They were in a squeeze. And that's why he's writing this book. The persecution has begun It's not full-blown, and he wants to lay out the value of hanging in there and not shipwrecking their faith. That's why there's a ship on the slide. You see a ship laying on the beach. To me, that symbolizes part of the meaning in Hebrews is that he doesn't want to see these guys wash out. He wants to see them go the course, and he knows that it's costing them a lot. You think that we have persecution here when somebody gets mad at us. And that's real. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not going to underplay that. I mean, these people were putting everything on the line. And they were experiencing huge amounts of loss. And by the way, they had also, by this time in the first century, they had expected that Jesus would return. And they were bummed out. They were upset. They were discouraged because he hadn't. And here we are 2,000 years later still waiting. And yet he knows the time. And he says it's not up to you to know the time; it's up to you to be ready. That's the emphasis that Jesus put on it. Both times they asked him about it. I'm not going to go there. I could get I could rabbit trail on that. So, probably in the early sixties. Who was it written to? Nobody knows for sure. <laughs> Nobody knows specifically. Uh, there's no opening salutation, as I mentioned. It's written to messianic Christians. Now, I share a quick story with uh, what happened when I was in Bible school. We were teaching this, and and the guy that taught Hebrews, this is the first time I went through the book, he was an excellent teacher. And and I mean, I just hung. It was like, man, I would just sit there in class and, and, you know, I'd write write notes like crazy. And I'm not generally a note taker. And he was just a really good teacher. But he said, now, when you approach this book, you have to approach it with a Jewish mindset. And so every day before class, he would get up in front of everybody and he'd, he'd open in prayer and he'd say, okay, now. And he'd snap his fingers next to his ears and he'd say, you're a Jew. And then he would say, because you have to look at this from where these people were standing. Well, this one day, this, this girl stood at the door. And in the entire student body of the Calvary Chapel Bible College at that time, everybody's going into the lecture hall. She stands at the door and she passes out coffee filters to every single person. And the instruction was, when he snaps his fingers, put them on. Because it was, it was sort of a makeshift yarmulke. You know what a yarmulke is? The Jews wear the little beanie hat things. Anyway, so he snapped his fingers and and everybody in the place put their yarmulke on. <laughs> it was probably 10 minutes before he could get composed enough to actually begin to teach. So, not going to remind you, I'm not going to snap my fingers and all that, but the important thing is is you have to adopt a Jewish mindset. You have to be able to look at this from where they were looking. And we'll do that as we go along. Don't worry about it. I mean, it's not like you have to go home and like read the whole Old Testament or something. We'll do that as we go along. We'll give instruction that, all right, you've got to look at this from a Jewish standpoint. This doesn't maybe make sense to you, but it makes sense to, made sense to them. And here's what we can take out of it. Here's the takeaway. Here's the, Because this totally applies to us. Get to that. All right, so... Uh, it was sent to a, a, a congregation of Jewish Christians somewhere in the Roman world. Don't know exactly where. Uh, it was probably a house church. Most of the churches in the first century were house churches. Uh Very possibly in Rome itself. Uh, there's a clue in chapter 13 that I think is interesting. You've, I love to do this detective work. It's, it's just fun. Um, he says, Those from Italy send you their greetings in chapter 13. Now, If I'm traveling with a bunch of people, and they're from Los Angeles, and I'm writing to people in Los Angeles, I'd be saying, hey, those from L.A., say hi. And that's what he's saying. So he doesn't say those in Italy send their greetings. He says those from Italy send their greetings. So it's sort of a hint. Again, it doesn't tell us exactly who he was writing to, but... It's just interesting as you do the sort of the detective work and come up with different hypotheses on what this was going, who this was going to and where they were and all of that. So again, it's not, it's not largely known at all. Well, it's not known at all who specifically it was written to. It was written to Messianic Jews. Uh, that's about the extent of it. So, And this is 15 years after the, the, the banishment that Claudius did. Now the persecution, the threat of persecution it appears to be a lot more serious. And this would be coming, the mounting tensions before persecution breaks out across the empire. As mentioned, this congregation lived through the banishment under the decree of Claudius. Insult, persecution, and especially the seizure of property uh, were normal under those kind of decrees. Uh the writer prepared this sermon. He prepares this writing for those who had been already thrown out of Rome, along with Aquila and Priscilla. You look in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. He talks about uh, the banishment of of Claudius there. And and so, again, pulling these things together and saying, okay, help us make sense going in, looking at this book, uh, taking a a look before we actually get into the the verses and we start to study it. We want to look at that. Okay, why was it written? Hey, there's something we know. I mentioned how much we don't know, but um, three things. It's a warning against apostasy, which means to deny Christ. Uh, the second is to encourage readers in the face of severe trials and persecution. Uh, the last thing is to deliver Christians from being Jewish, to free them from legalism, ceremony, and ritual. You guys know that how I feel about that. I mean, uh, just it's fine if we have things that we customarily do, but legalism manifesting through ceremonies that if we're not doing it a certain way I mean, you know, the last words of a dying church, we've never done it that way before, uh, and, and becoming ritualistic, hardened up, uh, sort of that wineskin getting hard, uh, the book of Hebrews will free from that. Uh, the next thing is their world was falling apart and God was quiet. Sound familiar? Sometimes it's easy to start getting carried off and to, to not stay centered and grounded in what it is that God's doing. I mean, I look around, I look at, especially look at the political landscape, I look at the cultural landscape and it's a mess. I say, Lord, what are you doing? Well, he's working. He may be quiet. And the writer's purpose in this is to say God speaks Chapter one, God in times past spoke to the fathers through the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us in his son. He's he's encouraging them coming out of the gate that God does speak. He's not quiet. That he's quiet, that you don't see what he's doing doesn't mean that he's not working, that he's not moving. Great encouragement for us. Uh, The other thing is the cost of discipleship for these guys was high. It was very high. To be a disciple of Christ, and in their eyes, they were thinking, well, maybe this is too much, too much of a cost. It's too high of a price to pay. And the writer is saying, no, you need to stay the course. As I mentioned, they looked at, at God as their sole defender, but where was he? That was sort of the prevalent attitude of these people that were going through these things. Uh, they lived in a religious culture that was hostile towards Christians. Very much like we do today. They lived in a secular culture that was hostile towards Christians. Very much like we do today. Does this book apply? Absolutely it applies. Does it give answers to the things that we face? Absolutely it does. Because both the Romans and the Jews were responsible for the persecution of Christians. The government and religious people were lined up against the, the true church. And these people were weathering persecution from both. They saw them as separate. Don't get me wrong. They didn't look at it as lumped into one. But truly, they were facing some pretty formidable odds, earthly speaking. They needed to know that God lives and that God speaks. So do we. I mean, folks, it's easy to get off. It's easy to just start becoming complacent about the things of God. And one of my main prayers for this book is that it will bring Christ alive in new ways in our hearts that we can hang on to, some tangible ways that we can hang on to, and that our faith will grow, that our relationship with him will grow. That's the point of this. We don't just do this so that we can have... And I know that in in an introduction like this, that it's kind of long and all of that. When we get into the text, you'll see that there's, there's just some great stuff. I mean, I could easily spend a month on the first four verses. We're not going to. But I mean, there is just so much meat in this book. How does it apply to us? Three ways that your faith is tested, sifted, and attacked. The first is i would call it practical or mild persecutions when people come against you they don't like you you're a christian i remember when i first became a christian my list of friends dropped well for one thing they got tired of hearing from me but i mean it it was it was true in and, and there are times i remember being at a, a little fair thing that uh, a church that we were at in California was at handing out water just handing out free water it had a sign that said the church's name on it and And there were people that would cut a path around or that I would try to hand water to and they would glare at me. And it's like, really? We're just giving you water? We're not, you know, we're not selling this. And, you know, they'd come by and say, how much is that? I'd say, it's free, but it's twice that if you want to. And, you know, it was just a simple outreach. But people don't like Christians if they're pushing against sometimes I've found that those are the people that are closest to the kingdom of God. So that doesn't mean that you give up and walk away. So active opposition, persecution, even if it's mild, relationships sometimes end, people become hostile, etc. That's one way that our faith is attacked. Another, and that's from the outside. Another is from the inside. Another is in our thought life, folks. How is my faith attacked? Because, you know, it can get it's subtle, but it's powerful. Others mock in ignorance. They, they, they come at you. The world wants to say that ultimate truth can't be found. How many times have I heard that? Oh, well, that's your truth. No, it's ultimate truth. And you need to understand that. This is real stuff. The Christianity is not some game. This is real. Jesus really rose from the dead. He really does govern this place from heaven. I don't understand how he does it, but I want to submit to it. So our thought life, can, we can become confused. And, and, and truth is, you've got to understand, truth is found in a person. It's not found in a philosophy. And people will want to argue philosophy with you all day long. And you've just got to point them back to the person of Christ. Part of what the writer is doing here is pointing people back to the person of Christ. Because the philosophies that were alive in the first century, many of them are the same ones that we deal with now. They just are packaged with a different name. But they're the same ones. They're the same kind of trials. The same kind of opposition. And and the, the God of this world is really good at repackaging and representing the things that we do battle with. And the battlefields for our mind. That's why 2 Corinthians 10 is so clear. Take those thoughts captive before the throne of Christ. Everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, you get rid of that. Because if you don't, you can start to slide. Carnality can creep in. Pretty soon compromise. Pretty soon kind of cooling off. Those are real things that we deal with. The third is panic. And I want to talk about this one for a minute. Fear sets in. When we're dealing with we're going through trials. We're going through things we don't understand. I would love to say that I never get panicky about a trial that I'm going through. But I'm going to be honest and I'm going to be transparent with you. Sometimes that first thing is panic. What I'm talking about here, fear sets in as we face difficulties. The issue is not simply believing in the abstract. Well, Jesus loves me and he died for my sins and he rose from the dead. But in trusting him when the trials come and life's circumstances press in. That's where the rubber meets the road, folks. And the the writer here in Hebrews is taking them beyond the doctrinal into the practical, saying, look, this is what it looks like, and this is how you need to walk it out in your life. That's how this book applies to us. The book was written to strengthen faith in Jesus, straight up. And going through this study, I, I guarantee you on the basis of God's word, not because of me, that your faith will be strengthened that you'll be challenged, that God will take and he will use this in your life in significant ways. The question then becomes, what's the condition of your faith in a world that pressures us and stresses us and, and would be unconcerned or even more welcoming if we turned from Christ? And that's an interesting question. And I'm not saying that I think anybody here is so weak that that's going to be the case. And yet, I, I clearly, I have dealt with people before where there's an unbelieving spouse and their life actually got easier when they compromised. That's a tough deal. It's a tough thing. There are pressures out there to conform. But we're told to not be conformed to this world, and be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. That's the point. So, quick outline. We're, I've got just a little bit further to go here. Uh, I want to talk to you about how the book breaks down and then when we get into the text next week, we're not going to even hit verse one this morning. I, I was hoping to, but I know me. Um, quick outline is there, the, the book breaks down into three sections. Is Christ is superior to all. There's a superior person is presented, and, and it's in chapters one through six Christ, a superior person, and then a superior priesthood. You guys understand, a priest, somebody that goes, is a go-between between man and God, and we don't have priests in the classical sense in the Protestant church, I and mean, the Catholic church, and that's, I could poke a lot of holes in that doctrinally, but, but the point is, is Jesus is our high priest. And we see that we have a better priest, not some guy, not some sinful man, not some guy that does sacrifices like they had in the Old Testament, but that we have a better priesthood, a superior priesthood. And that's chapters 7 through 10. We'll talk about that. The the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And there's just some fascinating, wonderful truths in there that we'll pull out. Uh, The last is a superior principle. Faith. Uh, Chapters 11 through 13. We see that faith is truly what sets us apart from walking according to the law, the list of rules. And now, as Romans calls it, the obedience of faith. And as we're, we trust him, as we believe in him, and our faith grows, that our relationship with him grows as well. So the theme of this book simply is Jesus is better. Uh, you'll see that word over and over again. The word better is used 13 times in this book. Other words that express the theme, the word perfect or perfected is used 15 times. Let us or let 18 times. So when the writer is addressing these people, he's including himself as one of them, and he's talking about perfection, not perfection that we're going to be perfect, but that we're perfected in him. And there's a difference in that there's a better way. There's 13 ways, and I'll read this really quickly, that Jesus is better from the text. Chapter one, better than the prophets. Chapter one, verse one, man, he just gets right into it. He says, you know what? Jesus is better than the prophets. Chapters 1 and 2, better than the angels. Chapter 3, better than Moses, the one who brought the law through God. Uh, Chapter 4, a better rest, a better Sabbath. We're not obligated to a Sabbath day anymore, folks. We get a Sabbath life. Today, if you hear, oh man, I want to preach these things. But the point is, it's a better rest in chapter 4. In chapter 4 also, we see that he's better than Joshua, better than Aaron. Chapter five, a better high priest, not like the priest, the Levitical priest, but this high priest after the order of Melchizedek that Abraham paid tithes to. We'll get into that. I mean, to have God as our high priest is very significant. Chapter six, a better hope. Chapter seven, a better priesthood. Chapter eight, a better covenant. Covenant. Chapter 9, a better tabernacle. Remember, there was a heavenly and there was the earthly. It goes into the heavenly. And we actually see the Ark of the Covenant in the heavenly there in the text. So a better tabernacle in chapter 9. Chapter 10, a better sacrifice for sin. Not a repetitive one, but once for all. Chapter 11, a better way. It's a better way to God. Chapter 12, a better relationship. So that's those are the contrasts and every time that the writer puts one of these things out he'll say now look at this in the old testament look at this in judaism look at this in in under the law and and in, in that now look at jesus he's better and then he tells us why and so I, you know my faith is just built up when i see these things because you want to talk about the bible being a unified whole by the time we're finished with this book my prayer is that you'll see it as more a unified whole. You'll see this as one message and it's the message of redemption and that there are things that go on in it that we need to pay attention to. Something that's in this book, some of the hardest, probably the hardest, uh, the hardest hitting passages in all of God's word are here in the book of Hebrews. There are six warnings in this book and some of them are absolutely sobering. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to sugarcoat them. I wanna teach them in context, and we'll see that the ones that are hardest hitting are talking about apostate. They're not talking about Christians who struggle, but they're very hard hitting. Uh, I'll quickly go through them. The danger of drifting, uh, to pay closer attention, unless we drift away from these things. That's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 uh the danger of a hard heart in chapter 3 verses 12 and, thir- uh, and 13 uh, that he says beware brethren lest any of you be in it have an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living god uh, again a warning there a danger uh the third danger is the danger of falling short chapter 4 uh today if you hear his voice don't harden your heart don't do what they did in the wilderness but don't fall short. Don't come short of his rest. Uh, the fourth danger is the danger of apostasy, which is simply changing one's mind. Uh, and that's that's a hard text. Uh, I'll read through it quickly in chapter four or chapter six, uh, verses four through six, for it's impossible for those who were once enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Hard words. Words to heed, words to understand in context, absolutely. Uh, The fifth danger is the danger of despising. Chapters ten, uh, twenty-six through twenty-nine. And, and again, a hard saying. He's talking about sinning willfully after we received a knowledge of the truth. But the word and the, the 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 play in that it's a direct reference to apostasy. It's just saying, you know what? I don't want Jesus anymore. You know, curse God and die. I just I don't want anything to do with this. And he's warning against becoming an apostate. And I look out today and I look out at the condition of the church in many ways. I believe the the great apostasy has already started and there's a place to guard our hearts and to to see to it that we're in the will of God and we'll look at that when we get there. The last uh, one here, the last warning is the danger of denying. Chapter 12, verse 25, he says, see to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. Remember, God had been quiet and he'd say no. He's speaking, he's speaking by his spirit through his word. He says, don't refuse him who speaks. For if they didn't escape uh, who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Speaking about, the, again, the contrast between uh, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Uh, great uh, parallel there. They're true warnings. The point is these are true warnings from this book. And and the point is, is we want to be rooted in our faith. We want to be rooted in our relationship. We want to be rooted in the gospel of Christ. Uh, Now is not, it's not the time to be seeing how close we can live to the edge. We want to be in a place where we're found in the will of God. We want to be in a place where we're fruitful and productive for the kingdom. The pressures on us are different, but they're not. The things that we endure, the trials that we go through, the the pressure to conform to this world, those are real things that all of us deal with. And this book, this letter to these suffering, persecuted Hebrew Christians contains answers for our lives. And that's the point. As we go through this, uh, again, my prayer, my fervent prayer is that we as a church would grow. And that we could see God's hand in our lives in a clearer way. And when we're faced with trials, when we're faced with persecutions, when we're faced with things that somehow we understand that God allows, but we're not comfortable in it, that we would have real, durable faith. And and not just faith in a benign or or, a doctrinal way, but that we would trust that God's in control and that we know who has the power and the authority over our lives every one of us. With that, I'm looking forward to going through this book with you guys and uh, and we'll hit the text hard next week. We're gonna hit the ground running. I'm gonna get into the first few. There is so much of the first three, four verses that we could maybe spend our whole time there, but uh, just look forward to getting into it and seeing what God wants to do with this book in our church, in our lives personally, in our church uh, corporately. So with that, let's pray. Father, thank you for... Um,